series officially in the book of Ephesians. She looked at how Paul writes to encourage this church in this very secular city and how he encourages them in their faith. Through the book of Ephesians, we're going to be focusing on the two main themes of the book, namely that Jesus Christ has reconciled all of creation to himself and he has united the church together in himself. The Apostle Paul writes to begin the letter of Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we're focusing on today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would open our hearts to your word. Lord, I pray that you would give me clarity in your word today, and Lord, that you would move our hearts to understand the immense blessings that we have in you, and how those blessings become manifested in our lives, in our struggles, and in our battles. We pray this in your son's name, amen. In the 1600s, there was this convocation of leaders, elders, pastors from a variety of different churches. And they gathered together Christians, elders, leaders, pastors, from congregational churches and Anglican churches and Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches, and they gathered them all together, and they were charged with a specific assignment. Their charge was that they were to articulate what it is that Christians, Bible-believing Christians of every denomination, believe in. What, are they, what is the core truth that every Bible-believing Christian should know, and that every denomination universally agrees upon. And so they gathered together, and they worked on it for several years, and they produced a document which, which was called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the Westminster Confession of Faith is our church's statement of faith, and it was a doctrine that was originally written to bring unity, to bring clarity to what was purported at the time that all Bible-believing Christians believed. It was a document that was written to bring comfort and solace and instruction. And the irony of it is that over time, that, the, that very purpose has been replaced with the opposite. The irony of it is that many times that that document, the Westminster Confession of Faith, is viewed as divisive. It's viewed as sectarian. It's viewed as um, a very limited biblical perspective. And how ironic that the thing that was supposed to give such solace, comfort, and unity, the practical experience has been quite the opposite. I mention that because we turn to a text today that has has had a similar pattern. It was a text that was written so that people might have full-hearted joy in worship of God. And it was written that people who were in the midst of struggle, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of temptation, would be comforted in their struggles and find hope hope to persevere in the midst of the struggles that they are going on and dealing with. Instead, 
what it ha has happened is that this text has been a text that Christians have argued over, fought over, divided over, and the very purpose for which God had given this text, the exact opposite has occurred. So as we go to this passage this morning, my intention is to focus on why God gave this text and the original purpose of it, and only curse at a cursory level to mention the difficulties that some people have with this passage. But as we dive into it, there are a couple key truths I want us to begin to focus on. As we begin to look at, we're going to focus on just two verses this morning. As, just so that you know, you've got to love the Apostle Paul. Verses, chapter 1, verse 3 through chapter 1, verse 14 is one sentence in the original language. It is one massive run-on sentence. And we're going to look at just a couple phrases of it as we begin this morning to dive into it. We'll be looking at the rest over the next couple weeks. And the truth that Paul encourages us with to begin with as he opens this is that in Christ Jesus, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Look at what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. What is he describing here? That everything that is needed, that you need for life, everything that is needed for godliness, everything that is needed for a faith that is genuine, sincere, persevering, and fruitful, every conceivable spiritual blessing is yours in Christ Jesus. And it has been granted to you. Well, what are those blessings? Well, we're actually going to focus on, focus on them over the next two weeks, the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. But as we begin to see that God has granted us every spiritual blessing, we need to first understand where these blessings occur. Because that helps us understand what the blessings are that God has given to us. And Paul says this, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has blessed you with everything that you need for a fruitful, fulfilling, productive, persevering, genuine faith. He has granted to you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, you might be thinking, you know, yeah, that's just as I thought. You know, I mean, one day if I die, you know, I'll die and get to be with Jesus in heaven and then everything will be better. And then I won't struggle with sin. Then I won't struggle with all these, these, these challenges that I have in my life. Just as I thought, one day I will have spiritual blessings in my life, but right now I will be powerless and miserable in this life. But Paul's point is actually the exact opposite of that sentiment. Paul, in the, in the book of Ephesians, five times he uses the phrase, in the heavenly places. In fact, he only uses it in the book of, book of Ephesians. But in the heavenly places, as Paul describes it over the book of Ephesians, is that the heavenly places are the unseen spiritual reality. The heavenly places are the unseen world of spiritual realities that you are engaged in and dealing with every day, day in and day out. That in addition to this physical world in which we engage in, there is a spiritual world that in some senses is more real, more true, more powerful, that has a greater impact on your day in and day out than anything that you see in this life. And that is the heavenly places. And that is the place where the battle occurs. 
Paul describes the heavenly places, and he gives a couple different descriptions of what the heavenly places are like. For the heavenly places are the place where Jesus Christ reigns supreme, verses 19 and 20. God grants what is the immeasurable, he hopes that God's people would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Where? In the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. The heavenly places is the place where Jesus Christ reigned supreme, that God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross as our substitute, taking the punishment that we deserve was resurrected from the grave and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, bodily resurrected, bodily ruling over the earth and over the whole universe. It is the place where Christ reigns supreme. But it is also the place where believers in Jesus Christ are united to him and reign with him. Paul describes this in verse 4 through 6, describing, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And what? Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are united to Jesus Christ. Your life is bound in Jesus Christ. You are resurrected with Jesus Christ and you reign with Jesus Christ. And so the heavenly places is the place the realm in which the people of God who are living on this earth have been raised with Christ and are united to him. The heavenly places are also the place where the struggle and battle of this life that you deal with, it is in the heavenly places that that battle takes place. It is where principalities and powers operate, Paul says in chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, He is identifying that the struggles that you have in your life are not against another person that you see. They are not against a concept that's out there or against an institution or an organization or another person, though there is a real struggle that occurs with them. The principal struggle is not against flesh and blood. What is the principal struggle then? It is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That if you are in a relationship, in a marriage, in a family relationship, where you are struggling, the enemy is not the other person. The real battle that is going on is not the conflict between you and the other person. The real conflict that is going on is the, rest, is the wrestling against the rulers, the powers, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. It is the real wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, and you are experiencing it in your relationship right now. That is the heavenly places. It is the place where the battle for faith occurs, and it is in the heavenly places where God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Consider this for a moment. Is that if you are in Christ, and I know there are many here today who are not in Christ, but if you are in Christ, there is this fusion between the natural and the supernatural. 
you become the nexus, the, the, the intersection, the, the, the portal. I don't like that one. The portal. You become, you become the connection point. You become the connection point between the heavenly places of being united to Jesus Christ and every spiritual blessing of yours that is in Christ. You become the connection between the supernatural and the natural world in which you are engaged and the natural world in which you struggle. And as you live in this life, as you live a flesh and blood existence, at your disposal in this life is every spiritual blessing, not in this life, but every spiritual blessing that is far greater because it is grounded and rooted and found, united to Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns in the heavenly places. And because you are united to Christ in the heavenly places, you have a supernatural power a supernatural access to resources for the struggles and wrestling that you are dealing with in your own life right now. There are these vast spiritual blessings and vast spiritual resources at your disposal. But we don't use them, right? You know, when I was in high school, in 10th grade, I was taking chemistry. My brother was in college, four years older, and he was a chemistry major. There was one day, probably about this time of year, that I had this massive chemistry homework assignment, and I was struggling to get through it. And I was struggling to get through it because I wasn't really paying attention in class, and I hadn't read my textbook, and I hadn't reviewed my notes, and I really didn't want to do the work of the homework that was before me. I just really wanted the answers. And so I called up my brother. Hey, Ken, I'm struggling with chemistry. Would you help me? He's like, yeah, sure, what do you need help with? So we dive into the first problem. He's like, well, well what's your approach to this? And I'm like, well, I, I, I don't know. What, what, what would you do? He's like, well, I, you kind of go like this. And we get to the second half of the problem. He's like, well, what would you do here? And I'm like, well, I was trying to figure that out, but I didn't really come, with, come up with anything yet. Um, what would you do? And after, we, after I finagled him to get me a couple answers, really I was just trying to, be miserable enough that I could get him to struggle through the homework with me and actually do it for me, he finally says to me, he goes, were you paying attention in class? He's like, not, not really. He's like, did you read, do you have a textbook? I'm like, yeah. Do you have your class notes? Yeah. Have you read them? No. <laughs> and he's like, I, I'm done with you. And he hangs, and he hangs up the phone right? What was happening is that I had every resource at my disposal. I had everything that I needed at my disposal for the struggle, the chemistry problem that was before me. But I was just, I just couldn't be bothered. I just couldn't be bothered to use the resources that were there for me. I just couldn't be, you know, I mean, it's just too much effort to turn the page and actually understand the instructions for the problem. I mean, golly day, what can a person expect, you know? And yet, that's the picture of many of our spiritual lives, is that you've been granted every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. You've been granted every spiritual blessing in the place where the spiritual battle occurs for everything that you're dealing with in your life. And you know what? For many of us, we would just rather wallow in the struggle. We'd rather just be there and be like, ah, yeah, it's just not getting any better. It's just, it's just not, how, I just don't know how to figure this one out. When every resource that you need has already been given to you. That every spiritual blessing that you would need for life and godliness has already been given to you. 
What is it that you need? Is it the need that you need courage to do the right thing? It is yours. Do you need strength for a difficult conversation? It has been granted to you. Do you need perseverance in the midst of the struggle that you are working through? God has bestowed it upon you. Do you need godliness in the midst of temptation? Christ has, has won that battle for you. Do you need life-giving speech? Do you need to forgive another person because you've got years of bitterness that continue to destroy you and destroy another person? It has already been done for you in Jesus Christ. It is yours in Christ Jesus. You've been granted every spiritual blessing, and no blessing has been withheld. One of the things that is so sad to me is I talk to Christians I've been Christians for a long time, and they say, well, tell me about your Christian journey. And they say, well, I, became, you know, I went to church as a kid, and I, I became a Christian, and I've, I've gone to church ever since. And that's a great thing. I hope everybody does that. I'm kind of into the church business, you know. Um, and they're like, yeah, and, I, and, I've, and I, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time. I became a Christian when I was a teenager. I'm like, well, tell me about your faith. Well, I, you know, I go to church every Sunday, and try, you know, I, I, I live for the Lord. How depressing. I mean, how sad is that? You know what I mean? I mean, the Christian life should be wonder after wonder. I mean, you've been granted every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You've been given resources for the spiritual battle that you're dealing with who are vastly at your disposal. That Christians, as they've been Christians for a long time, should start to, their life should be a life of testimony and wonder to say, yeah, not, yeah, God saved me years ago, but do you know what? He saved me again because I was dealing with this struggle. And do you, know what, do you know what Christ did for me? Do you know how Christ empowers me in the midst of this struggle? Do you know the spiritual blessing that God continues to give to me? I think that the, the rebuke of this passage is for those who've been Christians a long time, is this is calling you to throw off your complacency. To throw off the spiritual excuses that you give. To throw off the bare minimum of faith that you exercise to get by in this world. But instead, you would join in like the Apostle Paul and say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know you more. I want to know the height and depth and breadth and width of your love. I want to know every spiritual blessing that you have granted to me in Christ Jesus because I am engaged in a flesh and blood and spiritual battle. I want to know the wonders of your grace. I want to know the depths of your mercy. I want to know the power of your resurrection lived through the struggles of my life. Brothers and sisters, throw off the complacency and pursue the spiritual blessings that God has given to you. Because they have been granted to you. Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus is yours. Well, how can we be confident that this is true? How can we be confident that these blessings really are available to us right now, even though they're in the heavenly places, but they're available to us right now at this moment? It is because we have been chosen by God in Christ. If you are a Christian, you have been chosen by God in Jesus Christ. Paul says, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Imagine this, that before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, before time even existed, before the creation of the cosmos and the, and the heavens and the earth being thrown apart, in eternity past, when God existed, when only God existed in the perfection of his 
being. At that point, in eternity past, God did something. He did something. And what he did was this, is that he purposed in his mind two things. He purposed in his mind before anything had happened, before anything had been created, he purposed in his mind Jesus Christ, the only begotten eternal Son of God who was dwelling with him in all eternity. He purposed Jesus Christ and his people. And before they had been created, before anything had been created, before God had become fleshed in Jesus Christ, before the cosmos has been created, he purposed these two things to be united together as one. That there is an eternal purpose from before the foundation of the world, and in that purpose, if you're a Christian, it is Christ Jesus and you united together as one. And being united together as one, God has put us in his mind. Just consider the wonder of that. It was not so much that God created people and then he's like, oh my goodness, they need a redeemer. They're such a mess. But rather before any of that occurred, he had purpose for Christ and his people to be united together. John Stott, the great theologian, said this, God determined to make us, who did not yet exist, his own children through the redeeming work of Christ, which had not yet taken place. God chose us in him, is specifically what Paul says in verse 4. He put us together with Christ in his mind as a definitive work of God. Something that had been decided by the mind of God before anything or anyone came to be. Now this is exactly this whole concept is where there are some difficulties that people have with this concept of God choosing. Particularly, God choosing, the next verse in verse 5 and 6 says, uh, in love he predestined us to be adopted as sons. And there's some difficulty that goes around this, the idea of God choosing some and not choosing other, the idea of predestination. But as John Stott says, the reason why you believe this is because the truth of God's choosing is a matter of, quote, divine revelation and not human speculation. The reason why we believe it is because it is divine revelation and not human speculation. This was not a concept that was invented by Augustine or Calvin or Reformed Theology or the PCA or any of these other things. It was a concept that God has revealed in his word. It is an unquestionably biblical doctrine and no biblical Christian can ignore it. So if you have difficulty with it, what are you to do? You're humbly, you are to humbly accept this truth as truth that does not come up by the concoction of men but has been revealed by the will of God. Now, how this all works, there's a mystery to it. I suppose if I'm talking about choosing and predestination, I need to quote John Calvin, so I'll do that. <laughs> I know that some of you would be quite upset if I got through this without doing that, right? So Calvin, in the book of Ephesians, preached 48 sermons on the book of Ephesians. I'm probably going to do 20. Sorry to disappoint you. And Calvin on Ephesians 1 states this. He says, although we cannot conceive either by argument or reason how God has elected us before the creation of the world. The beginning point. We cannot conceive either by argument or reason. No human explanation is going to make sense of this truth. 
We cannot conceive by argument or reason how God has elected us before the creation of the world, yet we know it by his declaring it to us. Why do we know it to be true? Because God says it's true. And experience itself vouches vouches for it sufficiently when we are enlightened in the faith. What is he saying on the second aspect, aspect of that? He's saying those who are, who are Christians, who've been Christians for a while, they look at their life and they say, yeah, I don't understand it, but I, the only way that I'm a believer is because God chose me. Because there is absolutely nothing within me that would choose God. There is absolute, I bring nothing to the table except my brokenness and my sinfulness and my waywardness. I bring, I bring nothing and I offer nothing. And the only reason why God's grace has been bestowed on me is because for some incomprehensible and ununderstandable reason, God decided that before the foundation of the world, that Jesus, me, bound together, that's all I've got. And it should lead you to worship, and it should lead you to wonder. Now, some of you in wrestling through this, and it's good to wrestle through this. We've got a class that we do this, which will be starting up again next fall. Love to have you in it, particularly those of you that disagree with me. And... No, it's, it's great. It's a great. It's a great discussion. Anyone who's been in it will, will tell you that. Um, but some people at this point will say, okay, wait a second, God chose me. Didn't, wait a second, didn't I choose God? I mean, I sing. I have decided to follow Jesus. I sing it too, by the way. <laughs> didn't I choose God? Didn't I, didn't I decide to follow Jesus? Didn't I decide to put my faith in Jesus Christ? Yes, you did. And you did so completely freely. And you did, so com- you did so totally of your own free will. Absolutely, without question. Yes, you freely chose to follow Jesus. But the only reason why you decided to choose to follow Jesus is because God in eternity past chose you. The only reason why you love Jesus is because God, before you ever thought of him or even ever conceived, God set his affection upon you. And because God has chosen you, he has worked these things that we in turn would themselves choose him. God chose us by, we are chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world. Us, Jesus, joined together as one. Finally, there's a purpose to this. Is that we are chosen by God in Christ for a purpose. And the purpose that he has chosen us is that we would be holy and blameless. Even as he, God chose us, not us choosing him, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Let's take those words in the reverse order. That we should be blameless and holy before him. Blameless being the Old Testament word for unblemished sacrifice. Sacrifice that was, that was pure, that was spotless, that had no blemish upon it. And God has... If you are a Christian, God has chosen you in Christ, not because of anything in you. In fact, the very fact that you need holiness and you need blamelessness implies your brokenness and your corruption and the need for God to do a work of redemption so that you would be holy and blameless. But the reason why God chose you in Christ is so that you would be blameless, that you would be blemishless. You would be blemishless. There would be no blemish upon you. You would, be, there would, you would be blemishless. Say that five times fast, blemishless. If you do, you get the word blameless. And that's the original etymology of the word. It's true. Blameless comes from blemishless. Blemishless, a little hard to say that. But that in Christ Jesus, that you would be blameless. That you would be, that the guilt of your sin, 
that the shame of your sin, the blemishes that would be upon you, and though they are real blemishes, that if you are in Christ Jesus, those blemishes are removed and taken away from you because Jesus Christ is your substitute through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, that there is freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from your regrets and the things that would be define you, so much so that the blemishes that this world would define you by, that your conscience would accuse you by, those blemishes are gone. Because in Christ you are united to him. And not only are those blemishes gone, to be blemishless, to be blameless, but to be blameless and holy. That is not just simply without fault, but perfect, radiant, righteous. And what God does in Jesus Christ is he purposed from before the foundation of the world, Christ, us, joined together, that you would be holy and blameless, is that Jesus Christ on the talk takes, on the cross, takes our blame. But something else happens. By faith in Jesus Christ and being united to him, we take his holiness. And his holiness is credited to us and given upon us and imputed to us. So that everything that is good, right, and beautiful about Jesus Christ is credited to your account and is upon you. That's just not an objective reality. But it is indeed the very purpose for what God is working. And so as you are this intersection between the supernatural and natural, between this earthly life and in the heavenly places, as you are the intersection between these two, that yes, in your life, increasingly, there would be holiness and blemishlessness in your life. It would be increasingly manifested because that is the purpose that God chose you and united you in Christ. And yes, indeed, a day is coming when we see Jesus face to face when we will be perfectly holy and perfectly blameless. Again, some questions come up at this point that I think helps us, that helps clarify this purpose. Say, wait a second, if I'm chosen, if God's been predestined before the foundation of the world, can I sin and still be chosen? Well, absolutely, because it's not about you, it's about Christ. But those who are in Christ live holy lives. Hmm. Okay, can I, can I sin grievously and sin repeatedly and still be chosen by God? Yeah, you can, it's not about you. You can. But those whom God chose, he chose that they might be holy and live holy lives. Okay, wait a second. So can I, do, can I do whatever I want and still be chosen by God? Well, yeah, it's his choice, not your choice. But let me ask you, what does a chosen child of God Almighty most want to do? What does a chosen child of the king of the universe, who has been blessed with every spiritual blessing, where the battle occurs, what does a child of God most want to do? What does a child, what does one who has received love upon them and lavished upon them from before eternity to after eternity, that nothing will ever change that? What does a child who is so loved and so delighted in by the God, Lord God Almighty, what does that child most want to do? Live a holy and blameless life. And so it is. That in Christ, every spiritual blessing for holiness and blamelessness is yours because you've been united to Christ and bound to him in the heavenly places. 
And God not only says this as your purpose, but God does this fusion between the natural and the supernatural, so much so that there is this present indwelling working of his spirit in his children, and he is working in them and empowering them supernaturally that they would be holy and blameless. And at the very same time, his spirit works very quite naturally. His spirit works naturally in the lives of his children that they would, with every ounce and fiber of their being, desire and yearn and work to live a holy and blameless life before God. That both the working of the Spirit and the working of the person join together as God's Spirit enables us to will and to work unto His good pleasure. You're not left on your own. Yes, you are chosen to be holy and blameless, but God gives you this. He says this is the case, and He gives you every spiritual resource and is determined to bring it about, and determined to bring it about for you. Chosen to be holy and blameless. This biblical truth about being chosen, being predestined in love, that comes from the Bible, not from me, is a truth that is not meant to divide. It should remove all pride, because anyone who understands it would say, this is just mind-boggling. I have absolutely nothing to do with this. I only bring reasons why I should not be chosen. It is not to instill pride nor some sort of inside knowledge. Paul wrote this not for endless argument. He wrote it not to be an excuse to not evangelize because if they're predestined, why don't I do this? Not to be an excuse to sin if I'm chosen, it doesn't really matter. Now, he wrote this passage, I believe, for two profound reasons. The first is this there are some of you here today who are struggling immensely, your world is crumbling apart that you feel that the very foundations of your existence are coming undone. People you have trusted have betrayed you. Maybe you're the only Christian in your extended family and you're ostracized from your extended family. Some of you also are dealing with temptations right now and struggles in your life. And you are in a wrestling match with the spiritual forces of evil over the state of your soul at this very moment. And you are wrestling and you are battling and you are struggling. And you are struggling in the midst of these things, and it can feel as if you are all alone. But God has given us this word and has given us this passage so that in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your temptation, in the midst of what it feels like the world is crumbling around you, know that God has loved you. And he has loved you from eternity past. He has loved you and does love you with an eternal love. And he set his affection upon you, and he has loved you long before you ever began to conceive of him or ever thought to love him. And not only does he love you then, but he loves you right now in the midst of this struggle. And it is apart from your own merit. It is apart from your own obedience. It's apart from your own successes and failures. The reason why God loves you, because he chose in his mind tonight to unite you with Jesus Christ. And by uniting you together, that you would be found in him and bound in him, and right now in the midst of the struggle that you are working through, that you would have at your disposal every spiritual blessing. That that right now, when your life is the intersection between the natural struggles of this world and the supernatural struggles in the heavenly places, that in this place you would not be left alone, but that you who are bound in Jesus Christ would have these spiritual resources at at, at your disposal, knowing that they have been granted to you from before the foundation of the world. 
And nothing will question that and nothing will change that. And God has granted these things to you so that in the struggle, you would be holy and blameless. So that you would have courage and perseverance. So that you would be filled with joy no matter what you are facing because God chose you in him. The second thing that it should do for us is this. It should lead us to worship. Paul begins the verse by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why should we praise him? Because God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Not here, but where it really matters in the heavenly places. Praise God because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Praise God that we have not been left on our own, but we've been chosen to be holy and blameless. Praise God that we are united to Jesus Christ, bound in him, contained in him, and because he has been resurrected from the dead, we too will be resurrected from the dead and are united to him with every spiritual blessing. All of these things should give us not only encouragement and comfort in your struggle, but should fill your heart with joy to give him unending praise and unending worship. Let us pray together. Father, we ask that you would indeed encourage us with your word. Lord, that we would look at this passage not as um, a theological fencing match, but rather, Lord, that we would embrace the purpose with which you have for it, that we would be comforted, that we would be motivated to holiness and blamelessness because we have been bound together in Jesus Christ. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your grace, your incomprehensible, immeasurable grace from eternity past that somehow purposed Christ and us together. It is only in his name that we come before you and pray. Amen.